If you um, are using a pew Bible in front of you, um, the scripture passage is located on page 807 of the pew Bibles. And again, we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thanks, John. Well, good morning again. Great to be with you this morning, and welcome to this Advent season at Calvary, where we are journeying through Matthew's Gospel in these four Sundays of Advent, and we'll continue, as I mentioned last week, to continue on in our journey through Matthew all the way through until the early summer of 2018. We're going to just track all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, which should be a real treat for us to look closely at the life of Jesus as he's displayed for us, presented for us in the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, though, the second passage out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, about the birth of Jesus Christ, and I have given this morning's message the following title, check it out, In Praise of a Quiet Man. In Praise of a Quiet Man. It's a sermon about Joseph. And Joseph is a quiet man. And quiet men, and women for that matter, they tend to not get the credit they deserve. Right? The talkative types tend to get all the attention. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because you're a talkative type, and you tend to get all the attention at the... the dinner party or in the conversation, and people most of the time like hearing what you have to say. Others of you, though, as you know, are your quiet types, like Joseph. And you know how easy it is for you to be overlooked, for people to miss your contribution because their eyes and their ears are, of course, they're fixed on the talkative types in the group. You see, Joseph was a quiet man. And I say he was quiet because he never speaks. Do you realize that? Nowhere in our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, do we have any record of anything Joseph ever says. Why is that? Was he shy? Was he introverted? Did he have a bad stutter? Didn't like to talk? Was he a five in the Enneagram? Yes, I just had to give that out for free. 
We don't really know. What we do know is that we never hear Joseph say anything in any of our Gospels. And so the Christian tradition has some of these characters that emerge from Scripture. There's impetuous Peter, there's doubting Thomas, and let's add to the list, quiet Joseph. He was a quiet man. He was, of course, married to Mary. And Mary, you may know, was more talkative than him. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Mary has quite a few lines. You may know Luke's gospel. Mary talks an awful lot in Luke's Christmas story, in Luke's gospel. And what she says is spectacular. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. It's memorable. It's quotable. It's there in Scripture itself, what Mary says. And so when it comes to the Christmas story, y'all, think about it. We tend to fix our gaze, don't we, on Mary and not on Joseph. I mean, who's ever really wanted to play Joseph in the Christmas play? Like, what would you do if you played Joseph in the Christmas play? You'd stand there by some sheep holding a staff, probably looking lost. You're Joseph. You've got no lines. Or think about nativity scenes that we see all around us this time of year. No one ever really takes notice of Joseph, do they, right? He's like standing by the sheep, not doing much. And what part did Joseph play in this whole virgin birth thing anyways, right? Mary, you know, she even has her own song. Mary, did you know that you're a baby boy? I mean, Joseph doesn't have his own Joseph, did you know? As a matter of fact, you didn't know. That's what we know. You didn't know, right? And I mean, seriously, we get our outline and the content for the Christmas story that we all know in our culture and that we all know in the church culture from not the Gospel of Matthew, but from the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke's Gospel, the focus, for various reasons, is on Mary. And so in our culture, and in the church culture as well, our focus has been on Mary because she's the focus of attention in Luke's gospel where we get the outline and the content for our Christmas story. She's usually the center of attention. And Joseph, poor, quiet, shy Joseph, is off somewhere making tea or feeding one of his goats. He's a quiet man. But this morning, I think we should set the record straight. Not to dishonor Mary and her magnificent role in the birth of Jesus, but rather to honor Joseph. How about this? A a sermon in praise of a quiet man. A sermon about Joseph. Some of you candidly may be wondering, well, what role really did Joseph have in the birth of Jesus? I mean... You're no medical doctor, but a virgin birth leaves very limited scope for a father's contribution. So what did Joseph do anyways? What significance does he have? Mary, she's obviously, as she's known in church tradition, the mother of God. She conceives the Christ. She 
carries Jesus in her womb. She gives birth to baby Jesus, and that's no joke. That's a huge, huge deal. As Isaiah the prophet prophesied many centuries earlier, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Matthew quotes it in our passage. That's an amazing thing, to be the mother of God. Incredible. Incredible. And so it's hard to compare anything with giving birth to the Son of God. But Joseph's role wasn't therefore insignificant. Joseph obviously played no part in the conception of Jesus, but here's what I want you to understand. He had a major role to play in the adoption of Jesus. You see, Mary gave birth to Jesus, but check this out. Joseph adopted Jesus. Did you realize that? I'm sure there's some adoptive children in the room this morning. I know there are a number of adoptive children at our church, and there are no doubt also some adoptive parents in the room this morning. I myself am an adoptive parent, three biological children and four adoptive, adopted children. Did you realize that Jesus, your Savior, was adopted? And so don't ever feel, if you're an adopted child, like you're less than because you're adopted. Jesus himself was adopted. He was adopted by Joseph. It was a virgin birth. Jesus was conceived, look there, verse 20, by the Holy Spirit, as our passage says. Jesus isn't Joseph's biological child, but he is his child by adoption. And what we see in Matthew's gospel, what Matthew emphasizes in his presentation of Jesus is he wants us to see that Joseph, in obedience to God, adopts Jesus as his own son. And where do we see that in the passage that was just read for us? Two places we see the adoption of Jesus by Joseph. First, we see Joseph takes Mary to be his wife. You see that there in the passage. Joseph takes Mary to be his wife. Mary, who is, of course, the mother of Jesus. Joseph embraces her as his own wife. Even though, as we'll see in just a minute, he had lots of reasons not to embrace her as his own wife. He takes Mary as his own wife. But secondly, more importantly, Joseph names Jesus. Of course, the passage highlights the names of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus having the name Jesus, Jesus having the name Emmanuel. It highlights the names of Jesus, but you know what it also emphasizes? It emphasizes the naming of Jesus. But why stress the naming of Jesus and not just the names of Jesus? Because naming represents the legal act whereby Joseph embraces Jesus as his own son. It represents an adoption. There's this fascinating passage in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter 43, where God promises to take Israel back after Israel's rebellion and sin and, and, and exile. He is going to re-adopt the people of Israel. He's going to re-adopt the nation after their sin and exile and rebellion. And listen to how he puts it there, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. He says this, I have called you by name, you are mine. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to adopt you by, by naming you, by naming 
I adopt you. It's how it's done in the first century. It's actually how it's done in the 21st century. We adopted our three sons and our one daughter. We named them. It was part of the adoption process. You see what Matthew's doing, y'all? He is clarifying that Joseph adopted Mary's son, Jesus. This is what the angel commands Joseph to do. Look in your Bible, verses 20 and 21. Look at what the angel says to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Actually follow through in marrying her. You're betrothed to her now, but take her as your wife. Create a legal union with the wife and mother, with your wife and mother of Jesus. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And here's the second part. You shall call his name Jesus. And that's what Joseph does. He takes Mary, that is, he marries Mary, and Joseph names Jesus, that is, he adopts Jesus as his own son. Matthew's emphasizing that. But why, you may be wondering, does Matthew, the gospel writer, need to make the point that Jesus was adopted by Joseph? Like, What is that, why is that point stressed in Matthew's gospel? Besides, isn't the most important thing about the Christian story that Jesus is born of a virgin? The miracle of the virgin birth, isn't that the most important thing? Why emphasize this adoption that Joseph has of Jesus, that he adopts Jesus as his own son? Well, take a look at the passage immediately before the passage that was read for us, verses 18 through 25, the passage is before us this morning. Look at the passage that comes right before it. What is it? Well, it's, of course, what we saw last week. It's the genealogy of Jesus. Last week, we looked at that passage. We talked about how Matthew wastes no time, and you remember how I put it, preaching the gospel, because for Matthew, his genealogy is gospel. You see all these unlikely characters in his genealogy that he underscores and highlights because he wants to show the goodness and the grace of God. Matthew's genealogy preaches the gospel. But what we didn't get a chance to get to last week is a little hiccup, you might say, at the end of the genealogy. Did you see it there in verse 16? Take a look at verse 16. Notice what it says, or notice rather, how it says what it says. Quote, verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Well, looks kind of straightforward, no big deal. What's the big deal? Well, this is the fifth mention of a woman in Matthew's genealogy. Last week we talked about the, the other four women in the genealogy, and notice how Each of the other four women are introduced. They're introduced in the same way. A father is mentioned, who's the father of a child. And then the mother, who's the mother of that child, with the father of that child, is then mentioned as well with the little word by. By the mother of such and so. And so take a look at verse 3. Quote, we read there, And Judah, the father of Perez, by Zerah, by Tamar, there it is, the mother of Perez and Zerah with the husband and the father Judah. Or verse 5, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, there it is again a second time, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, there it is a third time. Or take a look down at verse 6, and David, look at verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
such and so is the father of so and so by the biological mother. It's the consistent formula for Matthew for the first four women. But notice how it changes. With the fifth woman in the genealogy with Mary. Notice verse 16 again. Jacob, the father of Joseph, and notice it doesn't go on to say not, it doesn't say the father of Jesus by Mary, but rather Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And what's the problem there? You may be scratching your head wondering, I'm not sure what the problem is. Well, what's clear in the passage? Ask yourself that. Well, it's clear that Jesus is born of Mary. That's, that, that much is clear in verse 16, right? Jesus is born of Mary. Check. It's also clear that Mary's married to Joseph. Check. We got that. Number two. It's fairly clear as well that Joseph isn't the biological father of Jesus. That's number three. Check. And it's also clear, isn't it, verse 16, in light of the genealogy, check this out, that Joseph has royalty in his blood. Joseph is the heir of David, check. He's of the Davidic line. Joseph is an heir of David, Israel's great king. In fact, notice how the angel refers to Joseph in Joseph's dream. Look there at verse 20. Joseph, what does it say? Joseph, son of David. Joseph's an heir of King David. Whether Mary is, we don't know. It's not made explicit, either in Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel. But of course, check it out. Jesus needs to be of the line of Joseph. He needs to share in Joseph's royal lineage. In fact, Matthew's whole genealogy, listen to this, hangs on Jesus getting connected to Joseph. Well, let me say it a little stronger. The whole of redemptive history that Matthew recounts from verse 1 with Abraham through David to Joseph, it all of redemptive history hangs on Jesus being connected to Joseph. You say it even stronger than that. Jesus' whole identity as the Christ, as the son of David, as Messiah, Mashiach, anointed one, king, anointed king, hangs on him getting connected to Joseph. In fact, we say it even stronger than that. We can say the whole plan of salvation, yours and mine, depends upon Jesus not only being born of a virgin, but being in the line of David, Israel's king. And so you see what Matthew's doing. You see, Matthew is presenting us with the fact that Jesus, or Joseph, has to adopt Jesus. Because Jesus needs Joseph's family tree, if you can put it that way. He needs his Davidic ancestry. So while Mary offers the virgin's womb, You see what Joseph offers? Joseph offers his royal lineage. 
Now, you can stop the message at this point because we will have stressed the main point of Matthew's presentation in this passage, which is how it is that Jesus, Mary's son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, not through Joseph, is connected to Joseph, who's connected with King David and ultimately Abraham. We can stop the sermon here and go to the communion table because we'll have stressed the main point. Jesus' adoption by Joseph to be in Joseph's royal line, but I'd like us to take a minute to consider a second point that I think is worth noting that Matthew underscores in this passage. And it's not what Joseph does for Jesus, namely adopting Jesus. Rather, it's what Joseph does for Mary. He adopts Jesus. But what does he do for Mary? What he does for Mary is he absorbs some of Mary's shame. That's what he does. You know, what struck me when I was preparing this message this week was the human dimension of this passage, trying to get into the story as it would have unfolded. And it's such a classic story. It's so familiar to us. It's almost iconic, the story of Jesus and Joseph and Mary and all of the rest of it. It's very easy, isn't it, to just kind of sentimentalize it and lose sight of the very real human dimension of the text of the story. But Consider for a moment the human dimension. Think about for a moment the human dilemma Joseph was faced with in this passage. Try to imagine it for a moment. Consider the basic facts as we read them in this passage. Joseph is betrothed to Mary. That's like a real serious engagement that can't be broken off except through a divorce. He, <clears throat> excuse me, he's betrothed to Mary with all of, no doubt, the joy and the excitement and the anticipation that that involves. He's betrothed to the love of his life. But then, seemingly out of nowhere, Joseph learns that the love of his wife is pregnant. See how verse 18 sets up the situation? Take a look there. We can feel the dilemma when we read verse 18. Matthew's very intentional about the way he arranges the details and the facts of the situation. When his, that is the Christ, Jesus' mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, like game on, very serious commitment, destined to be married. They're officially engaged, but not yet married. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. You see it there. And then as it clarifies, look, before they came together, before they consummated the marriage sexually. Notice what Matthew says. She was found to be with child. What grabbed me was the, the passive voice there. Like, found to be. She was found to be with child. Like, who found her to be with child? I wonder if it's referring to Joseph, who found his betrothed wife, who he had not consummated the marriage with, to be, to be pregnant. He finds this fact out. He notices one Tuesday afternoon when they're down at Winbury's having a soup and sandwich that she's got a bump in her belly. which can mean only one thing. 
From Joseph's perspective, she's pregnant. (laughs) And how did that conversation go between a sip of lemonade and and a little tomato basil soup? Um, Sweetheart, I've been meaning to bring this up like, are, are you pregnant? Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention it, 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 but it's by the Holy Spirit, don't worry. Oh, thanks for that clarification, sweetheart. How's your soup? I mean, that's not how it went. It's not how it went. You can imagine how it went. Perhaps it was even made worse by Mary's explanation about being by the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's not like... Virgins conceived by the Holy Spirit all the time. And Joseph's like, oh yeah, I got a category for that. I'm sure, of course, that makes sense. Just imagine, please engage in the story. Just imagine how gutting it would have been for Joseph. Imagine what happened to you, how painful, how infuriating, how humiliating, how embarrassing. How heartbreaking. He loved Mary. He was thrilled to be her husband, to live life together. Now it looks to Joseph like only one thing has happened. She has cheated on him. Which is painful enough. But consider the fact, as Matthew reminds us, that Joseph was, look there, verse 19, a just man. See that there, verse 19? He's a just man. (laughs) That is, he plays by the book. He follows the Jewish law. He's a devout and righteous Jewish man living in the first century, which means if your betrothed or your wife cheats on you, there's only one righteous course of action. Hand her the certificate of divorce and send her on her way. It's the only righteous thing for a righteous Jew to do in the first century. And it would have met everyone's expectations if Joseph would have done that. And it would have violated Everyone's expectations of Joseph wouldn't have done that. And yet notice Matthew tells us there was kindness and compassion in Joseph's heart. As it says, Joseph, he, Joseph, wasn't willing to put her to shame. He was a righteous man. You see verse 19, yet, He knew what the law says. He knew what cultural expectations were. Yet, he didn't want to do it because what it would mean for her put her, look at that last word, to shame. That is open public humiliation by taking her to the courthouse and divorcing her publicly because she's an adulterer. He's not a fornicator with her. She's an adulterer. Would have been to Joseph's advantage, wouldn't it? He would have saved some face. Guilty party would have been clearly seen. It was her, it wasn't him. He didn't lose self-control before the marriage was finalized. 
She did. You see what it says? Joseph didn't do that. Instead, look at this. He resolved, reading the text, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Quietly. Quiet Joseph is going to be kind and do this quietly with as little harm to Mary as possible. Joseph's been badly wronged from his perspective. He doesn't, though, notice. He doesn't scream and shout and throw things across the living room and post a nasty thing on Facebook about his unfaithful wife. He doesn't threaten or bluster or lawyer up. He does it quietly. Because he's a quiet man. And he deserves to be praised. Because you see, by doing it quietly, you see what he does. He absorbs some of her shame. Not because she's done anything wrong, but she sure looks to have done lots wrong. And so some of the public scorn that she must have felt when people look at her situation and find her to be with child but not married. It's not a good scene in the first century. It's not a great scene in the 21st century. It's definitely not a good scene in the first century. But Joseph, you see, kindly takes on some of the scandal to himself. You remember those four women from the genealogy last week, how I said there was a shroud of scandal and sexual liaison surrounding him. Why does Matthew mention them? He's prepping us for Mary. He's prepping us for Mary. And see what happens. Joseph is like prayerfully weighing his options. And he's deciding, like, am I really going to go through with this? You see, verse 20, what it says. As he considered these things, he was prayerfully pondering these things. And I imagine from exhaustion he, and, and, and being just totally brokenhearted, he's just like, I'm out. Just falls asleep. Like, I'm going to do this afternoon. That was a joke, right? I mean, I'm glad there was a little laugh. That was a delayed laughter. I would imagine he didn't even turn the lights off. He was just out. He was done. He was gone. But notice what happens next. Angelic intervention just in the nick of time. Verse 20, behold, which is do in Greek. It's a way of saying like immediately, like right in the nick of time. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Hey, you son of David, connected to Abraham, all the royal lineage. Hey, Joseph, son of David, check it out. Do not fear. Because shame is scary. So do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She wasn't kidding when she said, by the Holy Spirit. It's true. Virgin conception. 
So take her as your wife. It sounds straightforward enough. Joseph, take Mary as your wife. Adopt Jesus as your son. Yet perhaps Joseph was thinking to himself, how am I going to explain this to my friends and neighbors? Like that your wife is pregnant and you've not yet consummated the marriage. It's just a bit scandalous. And either she's an adulterer and you're still marrying her or you both are fornicators and you're still getting married and it's all just shameful. And yet Joseph embraces it. And what I want you to see, what I want you to feel is Joseph embraces it for her sake. For the sake of Mary. It's the kind of righteous man this Joseph is. He absorbs some shame for himself for the sake of his beloved. He knows he's in the right. He now knows she's in the right. Lots of people around them will not think either of them are in the right. But he does what is right. He absorbs her shame, takes a little bit on himself, doesn't distance himself from her, doesn't throw her under the bus. Got to pause at this point. I got to, if you will allow me, I got to draw a contrast between this praiseworthy, quiet man we see in this beautiful story and some of the ignominious characters we've been hearing a lot about lately in the news. Not quite like Joseph, were they? Are they? Not quiet like Joseph. But men have lived their lives in the spotlight, quite literally in a camera light. Yet men whose lives aren't about covering the shame of others for the sake of love, but covering up their own shame and their own sexual impropriety. Men who don't absorb shame from vulnerable women, but exploit and grope and harass and belittle and objectify. It's not the way Joseph did it. An avalanche of men growing by the day, even by the hour. Turn on the news tomorrow. Be another mugshot on CNN.com. Hollywood moguls, movie stars, news anchors, United States congressmen, and a president doing dodgy stuff as well. Harvey Weinstein, James Levin, Kevin Spacey, Matt Lauer, Mark Halperin, Charlie Rose, Russell Simmons, Al Franken, Roy Moore, Louis C.K., and that's like a little bit of the list. What a contrast with Quiet Joseph. What a contrast with his kindness and his character. You know, when you read this little Christmas story in Matthew's Gospel, you enter into the Christmas story. I mean, you could say, you could say that Mary's really the unsung hero of Matthew's 
Christmas story. What an amazing amount of faith and courage Mary displayed. I mean, just imagine if you were Mary. It's all true about Mary. It's beautiful and it's celebrated in Luke's gospel. You can read about the virtue and the faith of this amazing young woman, the age probably of my oldest daughter. Check it out this afternoon in Luke's gospel. Incredible. But you see, this morning's passage focuses on Joseph and the part he played in the Savior's birth. Joseph, you see, is a quiet man who I think deserves to be praised. To be praised for what he did for Jesus. He adopted Jesus, so Jesus shares in his royal lineage. He is now son of David after his father Joseph, who was son of David. But also he deserves to be praised for what he did for Mary. He adopts Jesus. He absorbs some of Mary's shame, taking it on to himself for her sake as an act of love. And yet in praising this quiet man, Joseph, can't help but think how This quiet man, Joseph, is a lot like another man in Matthew's gospel. Another man who stands in the breach. Another man who is just and righteous himself. Another man who absorbs guilt and shame. Another man who takes it onto himself, the shame of others, as an act of love. You see, this sermon in praise of a quiet man leads us to another quiet man, the quiet Lamb of God, whom Mary in this passage is carrying in her womb, like father, like son. They will call him Jesus. Why? Verse 21 tells us, for he will save his people from their sins. In fact, Scripture says Jesus absorbed our guilt and our shame and did it, like Joseph, quietly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, quote, He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled and shamed, he did not revile in return with bluster. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And I might add, and he did it quietly, quietly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. In praise of a quiet man who you see hung quietly for, from a cross for you and for me. That's who Jesus is, like father, like son. I'm sure there's some U2 fans in the room this morning. Can I get a little shout-out from the U2 fans? There's, some, there's a few of you. Do you know they've got an album, that was, I think it was released in 2000, called All That You Can't Leave Behind? And I think it's the last track on that album, track 13 on that album, is a song entitled, you know Bono. Bono's like a little rock star theologian. Does everybody realize that? Right? And he's got this song entitled Grace. Grace. Go Spotify it this afternoon. Grace. 
on their album, All That You Can't Leave Behind. It's a celebration of how grace breaks in, disrupts the world in the most beautiful way, changes everything. And I love the opening line. Listen to this opening line from Bono, his song, Grace. Grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame, removes the stain. It could be her name, Grace. Y'all, that describes almost perfectly what Joseph does for Mary. Joseph, he takes the blame, at least part of it. He covers the shame, at least part of it. He removes the stain, at least part of it. It could be his name, Grace. But more importantly, y'all, it perfectly describes Jesus. And what Jesus has done for you, what Jesus has done for me, Jesus, he takes the blame on the cross. He covers the shame in his death. He removes the stain through his blood. It could be his name, grace. It could be his name. In fact, it is his name. Grace is his name. For what else does it mean to call him Jesus? He will forgive us of our sins. And Emmanuel, at the same time, God with us. What does that mean other than we call him grace? Grace upon grace upon grace. Amen? Let's pray. There's a grace that is greater than all of our sins and all of our debts. And it is not an abstraction. It is not an abstract thought. It is not a theological concept. It is not a Bible slogan or word. It is not a Christian cliche. It is a person. It is Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. Father, we are reminded of the preciousness of those two names. One pointing us to forgiveness of sins, one pointing us to communion and presence. We are reminded of both of those precious names as we reflect on this quiet man who deserves to be praised that points us to the quiet man who deserves to be praised even more. And as we reflect on the table in front of us now, Jesus, would you, on the basis of your shed blood, the kindness of your heart and the mercy that has been ours from all eternity past, would you invite us to draw near to you in repentance and faith this morning that we might experience and encounter God with us through the bread and through the cup. Because of the incarnation, because of the crucifixion, because of the resurrection, in hope, Lord Jesus, of your ultimate return. We pray this in your name. Amen.